This is the CRO Gumbo Podcast by Christian Louvier. What's poppin' CROs? My name is Christian Louvier, and I am the I am here with the CRO of Eventplicity, Greg Bond. Greg, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good, Christian. How are you? Doing well, man. It's a Friday. Oh, happy Friday. Love that. <laughs> it's a Friday, and SEC football starts tomorrow, so... Uh, well, my SEC team started uh, last week, and we pulled one out barely. <laughs> <laughs> rough start, huh? A very rough start for the Gators. Why don't you, t- why don't you tell everybody who your team is? Uh, it's the Florida Gators, man. Uh, Got it. I graduated from the University of Florida. Uh, we work here in Gainesville in the shadow of the University of Florida campus. So uh, most of the people who work here and all the executives graduated from the University of Florida. Um. Now, Greg, are you from Gainesville or you just kind of went to college there and then eventually made your way back for work? Yeah, no, I'm actually from Ocala, very small town just south of Gainesville. Um, okay. Horse farm capital of the U.S. Um, <laughs> really? A lot of the Kentucky Derby horses are bred and trained in Ocala. So little, little wow. known fact, but it's about 30 minutes down the interstate uh, from Gainesville. So grew up, you know, in the area. Went to the University of Florida, and then soon after, um, headed out to Los Angeles. Were you ever into uh, horses as well, or was that just kind of like you need to know your city history? Yeah, you need to know your city history. I, I, <laughs> Got it. I barely can ride a horse. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> um, we did have some horses, because the area we lived in was fairly rural, so um, our neighbors had horses, and I, I had fed horses growing up, but... That's about the extent of my horse knowledge. Got it. Um, and uh, did you did you play any baseball past Florida at all? I did, but not in a highly competitive way. Um, the University of Florida sort of ended my competitive baseball, although okay. I'm wicked competitive, just period. Um, <laughs> but uh, when I moved out to Los Angeles, um, there were uh, adult baseball leagues out there, which is okay. pretty cool. And so we played... Uh, in a lot of different uh, games and tournaments. Um, the championship game of the league that I was in played their championship game at Dodger Stadium. So got to play on a major league ball field. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. Wow. That's a, that's a pretty historical park you got to play in. Yeah, it was pretty cool. What um, what position position did you play at, at UF? I was a catcher. Got it. And when when were you there? Uh, 96 to 2000. Okay. Um, pretty, pretty good run of years yeah. there. We you went got what, like two or three twice. rings, right? I didn't get any rings. We didn't win it ever, but we, um, we went to Omaha twice. Um, some really good teams. There's, if you, there's I thought, teams, I thought I, yeah, it must be the SEC championship. I'm thinking about then. Oh, the SEC championship gets rings. Yes. You you're doing baseball. And then you said you moved to LA when that was that kind of the professional part or, or the opportunity to go pro kind of wasn't there. So you go to LA. Um, you, uh, we'll get into it in a bit. You said you become an actor. So was acting always on the radar or you just kind of wanted to go out there and see what was up? Um, so acting was always something I was interested in. I was always interested in entertainment. I'd always been obsessed with films and, um, I don't know. I I had this weird preconception, I guess that, um, because I had grown up playing baseball and I'd played baseball my whole life. 
I felt like if you were going to be an actor, you had to be kind of like raised to do it. And you were in plays your whole life and you were on <laughs> TV your whole life. Like, I just thought it was like that same sort of thing. Like you dedicate your life to this thing and you, you know, learn and grow and do it for a very long period of time and you come become a professional at it. Um, and it, it actually wasn't until right, right after I graduated from UF, I moved to Orlando briefly. Um, and I lived there for about a year and I worked for a comedian named Michael Winslow, um, the guy from Police Academy who makes all the noises. Yeah, yeah. Um, how many, <laughs> I lost track. How many Police Academies were there? Well, I know he was in seven and seven. Wow, that many. Okay. Films, but I kind of feel like they might have made another one. And he was um, in it? He's still in them? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's, he's the only cast member that was in all of them. Wow, that's crazy! Yeah. I I, I always thought I always thought that whole series was uh, at least the first five, first three or four were terribly underrated, <laughs> as far as like getting recognition. Yeah, for sure. Um, but it, with my run in with Michael Winslow, um, just kind of hap by happenstance and, and somewhat random, um, I became his tour manager and traveled around with him. And by you know being on the road with him and talking to him and hearing his stories, that he just one day was like, I want to move to LA. I want to try this and. He packed up everything. He went and lived on Venice Beach and you know, lived in his car. And uh, no, wait, how did how did you become his tour manager? So my uncle um, on my my mom's side is a former uh, kind of tour manager for bands. Mm -hmm. He did uh, some work with like Van Halen back in the eighties. He was their tour manager. Um, so he he's always been producing concerts and and representing bands. And that's kind of where I got a little bit of the entertainment industry bug from. I used to, in college, my summers would, I would be spending them down um, in Orlando or Daytona, you know, producing bike week concerts and things like that with him. Um, and I just enjoyed it. And so when I graduated, um, I was looking for a job. He was like, why don't you come down and help me out with some of this stuff? I did. And he had just signed Michael Winslow at that time because Michael had moved to Orlando and was looking for a tour manager and I was available. I went on the road with him. It was just kind of like good timing and weird happenstance. That's pretty incredible. When you, when you say um, go on the road, was, was he doing like stand-up tours? He was doing stand-up tours. He did 300 dates a year. Wow. Um, yeah, it was uh, insane. We were on the road a lot. I was barely home. Um, but it was really cool right out of college, get to travel, get to see, see the world and, Mm -hmm. um, work with somebody who I'd seen on TV before. And it just kind of gave me this very different perspective on the world. And, um, I don't know how I could, how I could fit in it. When you, when you say different perspective on the world, anything specifics stand out? Um, yeah, I mean the, the biggest thing that I think I really learned from him is that um, there's two main things I think that stuck with me. Uh, one, if you want to do it, try it, like just go for it. Just, um, you know, learn what you can about it and give it a shot. <laughs> um, that's, that's kind of what he did and, um, kind of what he taught me and also, um, putting in the work, you know, you, you see someone like Michael Winslow and he's funny and he's talented and he's got this show and this stick that he does. Um, but that was 20 years of work to get to the point where he could put that out somewhere, um, where people would find it funny or interesting or entertaining. 
Um, and so I just kind of learned the work that goes into it, the behind the scenes work that goes into it. Um, I used to workshop jokes with him. I ended up rewriting some of his jokes. Really? Um, yeah. Just based on stories that he had told me. And I was like, why isn't this in your show? And he's like, well, write me a joke. And so I'd write him a joke and we'd <laughs> workshop cool. at the comedy club and then I'd see him do it. And like the first couple times he does it, it doesn't go well. And then <laughs> kind of workshop it and it gets to a place where, okay, that's funny. Now we just need to tweak it a little bit and, put it in the right place and make it really funny. It's like, Oh man, that's how this works. So you learned how to, you learned how to write basically. That's pretty, yeah. pretty, I think people are uh, starting to uh, realize the value of that, that skill set. the more technology comes into our lives. Yeah, of course. Um, what is, is there anything that you can share from that type of atmosphere that most people would be surprised to hear about like life on the road? Oh, it's certainly not as glamorous as people <laughs> might think. Um, and, and Michael, uh, um, you know, everyone wants, um, wants to, when we go to a certain city, uh, to do a, a comedy club, all the radio stations would want Michael to come by in the mornings and do the morning shows with, uh, the local talent. And, um, I, I just remember watching Michael get up every morning. Um, we'd have to get up at like five, 6 AM to get to the radio station you know, he's exhausted from the show he did the night before or the travel to get there. Um, his voice isn't even really warmed up and they sit him down in a chair. You meet somebody for two seconds and they say, okay, ready, go be funny. Oh, and he, and he does voices funny. too. Whereas yeah, most people just voices. talk, he's got to perform. Yeah. It's like, he's performing like really, really early in the morning and that level of performance like everyone expects the michael winslow from the show like he right. can't be the michael winslow that i knew traveling around he had to be you know this full of life you know funny guy with a bunch of noises and um that part of it was really exhausting um and there was no red bull back then <laughs> no red bull back then, no. <laughs> black black gas station coffee is about all you had <laughs> that's right um Cool. Uh, so Greg, I want to, I want to switch gears a little bit. I was looking at your IMDB profile. Did I saw you were Mr. 3000? Um, was, yeah. was that a coincidence? Because like, I didn't know if they were like filming near Florida or something, or you really just got into a baseball movie. Yeah, no, I, they, there was, there was not much coincidence about that one other than the way I, I heard about it. Um, I'd, I'd moved out to LA. I was in acting class. I was in a theater company. I was really trying to like, own my craft. I'd only been out there a couple of years, like three years at that point. And um, I was playing softball because, you know, I had a baseball background. Mm -hmm. So I was playing softball. Um, some guys from the theater company had asked me to play softball with them. And one of the guys uh, in the theater company said that he had heard about a, a film that Disney was doing uh, and it was a baseball movie and that I should audition. I was like, that sounds great. How do I do that? <laughs> um, and I, I had just been cast in a play and the director of the play um, knew somebody over at Disney and connected me. And it was somebody in a totally different department. Um, they worked on films, but they were, they were like the product placement for films. And um, so I talked to that person and they said, oh, let me see if I can find out some information for you. And oh, so when you say like product placement, like if Pepsi wanted something in the film, then that they were responsible for making that happen type thing. Right. Yeah. Okay. So okay. They, they like Louisville slugger for the bats or the gloves or whatever would Got it. contract with them and they'd put this stuff in the movie. Um, so they found out the information that they could about it. And all they could find out was that there was a um, baseball tryout in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 
the week after I had talked to him um, and he gave me all the information. He's like, it's a, you know, it's just an open tryout for all baseball players and they're going to cast people in speaking roles from the baseball tryout. <laughs> okay. And I was like, okay, so you're saying I got to go to Milwaukee. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> who, who knew? Who knew? Who knew, right? Yeah. So I, um, I had talked to, I was, I, I had mentioned I was in a play at the time and I talked to some people that I was doing this play with and the, the star of the play um, said, uh, what do you have to lose um, by trying? And I was like, I, I don't know, I, nothing, I guess. Money? <laughs> the, the, the money that it costs to get there? And I, I was a broke actor. I didn't have any money. Um, now, wait, wait, at this point, are you still getting paid by, Win are you getting paid by Winslow at all? No, 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 no. Oh, I was so picking totally... up odd jobs in LA. Yeah. I, there was a clean split when I left Orlando um, I, and to go to LA, I, I just had to go find random jobs out there. Oh, so you were not working for him like from LA. You were working with him just from Orlando while he yeah. was on the road. Got it. He had moved to Orlando and that's where his home base was. And so I was traveling with him from Orlando, but then I came off the road um, and moved to LA um, a lot of it, you know, from him prodding saying, Hey, if you want to do this, if you want to, if you want to try it, you need to go, just go. Mm -hmm. Like, and I was like, well, maybe I should move to Atlanta first. And he's like, why just go, <laughs> like, yeah, just go give it a try. You're going to have to start at the bottom somewhere. So just go. Um, you should have moved you know. to Milwaukee. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> been, a, been an easier route and probably far less money spent. But, um, but yeah, so I talked to these people in this play that I was doing and they said, um, they said, just, uh, you should just go. And so I, we had a tech rehearsal, um, on a Wednesday night, I flew out on the red eye after the tech rehearsal, got to Milwaukee in the morning and, you know, uh, early in the morning on the Thursday, drove to the baseball field, did the tryout, um, right after the tryout, drove back to the airport, got back on a plane, flew back to LA to do the performance that night and uh, wow. all through the weekend. And on Sunday afternoon, after our matinee show, uh, I got a call saying, well, you made the baseball team. We need you here to audition for a speaking part tomorrow morning. <laughs> so, Get out of here. You had to fly back? I had to fly back on the red eye that night, got in the next morning. Um, went to the casting, met the director, um, and they cast me that afternoon and told me that um, uh, we had to start baseball practice the next day and I was going to be in Milwaukee for the next six weeks while we filmed. <laughs> so, wow. And so you had to drop out of the play? Drop out of the play. Um, had to get my girlfriend to send me more clothes. And I mean, I had brought enough for like a week, but uh, I didn't realize I was going to have to be there six weeks. So sent more clothes out and spend the next six weeks filming a movie um, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And that's how I got my SAG card. That's how I got started. That's how kind of everything started rolling from there. And um, financially, did it be, was it ROI positive? It was, it Good. was, yeah. Um, <laughs> SAG cool. does a great job of making sure you get um, paid for the work you do and um, the residuals. Uh, you, you get residuals as long as someone is watching Mr. 3000 forever and ever and ever, uh, money will be rolling into your bank account. It is, it's as time goes on, it gets smaller and smaller. Sure. Um, but yeah, I still get checks. Did you get to spend time with Bernie Mac at all or not really? I did. Yeah. A lot of my scenes were with Bernie. Um, okay. well, actually all of my scenes were with Bernie. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> but the first the first scene that we did, um, they had brought in a huge crowd into Miller Park in, in Milwaukee um, to fill the stands. I was pitching, uh, Bernie was hitting, and um, I had been pitching to his stunt double in practice for weeks, and I'd hit a stunt double like three times. <laughs> and they were like, you cannot hit Bernie back. <laughs> Okay, I'll try. <laughs> actually, cause um, an actual fight. Yeah. So, um, charge the mound of the market. Yeah, we got thirty thousand fans up in the stands screaming and yelling, and I'm, you know, pitching to Bernie, and they say cameras roll and throw some uh, pitches to him. And uh, on the first cut, he walks out to the mound, and he's like, "You're bringing some heat." He's like, "Keep bringing it. I'm gonna hit it." Um, and then uh, in between scenes, he used to come sit down with me in the stands and just chat. Um, he was a really, really, really nice guy. One of the nicest people I've ever met um, in that profession. Did did um did y'all keep in touch um, after that movie, or did y'all cross paths anywhere else? Yeah, we did. Um, he, you know, when we wrapped filming, he uh, he knew I lived in L.A. Um, and so he invited me by the set of his show because he was doing the Bernie Mac show at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and I used to have it was on the CBS Radford lot out in LA and I used to have to audition there pretty often. And so whenever I'd go audition at CBS Radford, I'd go swing by and say, Hey to Bernie and, um, hang out on set and he'd take me back to his dressing room. We'd just kind of chill and talk about life. He'd ask me how things were going, how my auditions were doing. Um, he's just, he was like, he was, cool. he was just a really nice guy. He invited me to a couple of their rap parties. So, yeah. Um, Greg, how, how, um, when you're out in LA and you're trying to make that happen, I imagine, you know, it's, well, first of all, you probably expected the first job to be somewhere in the metro Los Angeles area. Right. Um, but uh, how, how is it after you get that first job? Is it is it like you're kind of in and it may lead to some other form of movie or TV gig, even if it's not on screen? Or is it really just like feast or famine? Um, yeah, it's I'd say it's kind of somewhere in between, but much closer to feast or famine. Um, okay. When you get a job it brings other jobs. Um, when you've just worked, uh, you get more work. And so you kind of go in spurts, right? You'll get a few things here and there. Um, you'll get on a roll because, because you'll go into an audition with some confidence and you do well and they ask you some questions and you're like, wait, I just got off this movie with Bernie Mac and they're, you know, they haven't seen it yet. They don't know anything about it. It's not coming out, but it sounds cool. And so you get another job and then you're going, yeah, I just did this you know, a movie with Bernie Mac and this TV show and, you know, it just kind of like keeps rolling. Um, but at some point that momentum slows and you go a year without a job or you, know, you go a long period of time where you just can't get work and then you got to get it rolling again. And, um, so it, it, a lot of it is very streaky. So that sounds a lot like what a entrepreneur or a sales rep would go through. Um, what, where did you kind of, I guess, see the writing on the wall and we're just like, you know, and I need to get into something more uh, stable. And I'm, I'm, I think I need to try some version of business, which is not related to me acting on screen. Yeah. I mean, I, I'd say it kind of came in the middle of my acting career um, where I just realized it was so sporadic that I needed another way to make money and, and a way to make money that I was in control of because you have so little control in acting you're, you're waiting on someone to cast you. I could do all the work in the world. I could put in 
all the time, practice like crazy. You know, it was, it was very different from baseball in that respect where if I practiced more than everyone else out there, yep. I was going to get more hit. Yeah. I was going yeah, to come out and, and, and be, you know, an all-star in baseball. Well, in acting, it doesn't work that way. It's so subjective. So I could, I could work my butt off and I could practice, um, day and night, which I did. Um, but I, I still needed the right role, um, the right casting director, the right director to all say, yeah, we like this guy. We want him. And they, they're taking a big risk on me by doing it. And so I wanted to be in more control. So I actually started my own production company in order to write. I'd been writing for Michael Winslow. I thought, well, I'll just write some stuff and um, I'll see who wants to buy some of the stuff that I write. And I was pretty well, good. Greg, I want to go, I want to go back real quick. So I, one of the hardest lessons I, I, I don't think I realized at the time and you just kind of hit on it is, you know, I was, I was never the most elite person. I was just the one that was going to outwork somebody, which kind of sounds like what you were. Mm -hmm. um, did that hit you between the eyes? Like when you were acting and you're like, I'm going to start this production company or did that kind of lesson gel for you after the fact? That's a great question. I think, you know, I was always someone who worked pretty hard. Um, I would even say when I was playing baseball in college mm -hmm. is when I realized what hard work was because before then I had talent and talent <laughs> took me pretty far. Until you get to the um, SEC and you're like, and oh you my God. Baseball, you're like, Whoa. <laughs> yeah. And I was on a team with guys who outworked everyone, right? Like I thought I worked hard, but until yeah. I saw what they were doing, um, you know, I, I played with David Eckstein and David Ross and Josh mm. Fogg and Brad Wilkerson. Like these guys, their work ethic was unbelievable. And mm -hmm. what I, what I learned from them was, Oh, if you want to be an elite athlete, you got to work that hard. Like you can have talent, but you got to work that hard too. And so I, I, that experience made me step up my game as far as the, the work ethic goes. Mm -hmm. um, and so when I actually moved to LA and started acting, I realized that if I applied that same work ethic to acting, um, I was actually outworking most actors in LA um, because they probably didn't have the elite sports experience I had. And so yeah. they were doing what they thought was hard work. And I was doing that like extra mile, like I had seen. And I think that really did contribute to my success. But what I realized is that that's not, that's not everything. Like there's so much more that goes into it, especially with, with acting or something that's subjective. Um, you, you kind of have to have that hard work and that ethic um, constantly. And you are always looking for that, moments to take advantage of it where those two things kind of come together um, and make even a, a more special moment or, or something uh, more special happen. So, um, you know, where, where was it? Luck and opportunity meet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the production company started, was that the, those damn guys? Yeah. Okay. So you, I mean, you made it pretty well. I mean, that's almost a decade. You had it for eight plus years. That's, that's a really long time. Uh, yeah, we, again, we kind of, <laughs> we found this little weird niche in the market. It was at the time when YouTube was just kind of getting started. And, okay. um, at the, you know, before that, everyone was making film. Like if you were doing a corporate um, video or any sort of marketing or any film type stuff, you were doing it on film. It was really expensive. Or you were doing like VHS or, you know, maybe there was beta cam, <laughs> <laughs> but it was all really expensive. Um, <laughs> 
and um, you had to, you know, get the client over to your edit suite and all that kind of stuff. Well, the roommate that I had at the time was an editor. I was a filmmaker. We had a camera. Um, it was a digital camera. It was a high-end digital camera. And we were like, let's just start filming stuff for people and let's put it all in line. We'll, let's edit it and let's use YouTube as our like um, daily review. So we would send edits through YouTube to people um, so clients could watch it and then they would give us notes and send the notes back and we would re-edit and put, post it on YouTube again. Um, and so we had this like all digital workflow that no one had at the time and we were very familiar with YouTube. And so when YouTube started monetizing content, we we're like, oh, we're, so we're totally familiar with this. We can do this. <laughs> and so we, we kind of jumped into that market and started doing a lot of corporate um, production. We did a lot of red carpet and PR stuff. Um, we, were, we worked very closely with Staples to do a lot of their PR content. Um, we did, there's a PR group in Florida actually that uh, represents like Bonefish Grill and we, we used to do stuff for them all the time. Um, we used to do do something.org. We used to do their red carpet and their entire event and do a big recap um, production of their event every year. Um, so we just kind of like picked up odd jobs here and there that we could do. Um, just me and two other guys. So, so Greg, you've been in, obviously of all the people that I've got scheduled to interview and have reached out to you probably have one of the more unique paths of somebody who's in a CRO chief revenue officer role. Um, <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, uh, I, I guess one of the things that stood out to me is like, you do have a whole background in some, some form of media, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and then, uh, eventplicity, uh, does, does it do software for media, like in terms of like uh, event marketing? Am I understanding that correct? Um, eventplicity is fairly different. Um, this is a departure for me from that media and entertainment it side, is. although okay. I, it's still entertainment and, and in a certain way, but what we do is we create, um, software to help people, um, book private events at okay. venues. Um, it's a very painful process and it's very complex and people always want it to be unique and special, um, which adds to that complexity and makes it really high touch. It's a, it's a high touch consultative sales process, um, which actually has private events. Do you mean like if somebody, I don't know if I went to like a corporate uh, party and they had like a private concert or something like that? Uh, could be that that's um, a little on the larger scale, but even, you know, a, a corporate holiday party, um, okay. a board meeting where they do it at a restaurant and they're going to feed everybody and do a presentation pharma dinners where they're doing presentations on drugs. Um, okay. as far down as like even birthday parties or, um, bridal showers, wedding receptions, all of that stuff. Um, these are people who need to plan something in advance, multiple months in advance, usually. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a lot of, uh, back and forth to get the details worked out. Um, everyone, I mean, it's a high, it's a high cost, a financial cost and a high mm -hmm. social cost of failure. So the complexity oh. involved, um, it's just, is really high. And so, uh, you know, if you can imagine someone on at a venue, especially if it's a restaurant and it's a general manager who's trying to handle this, they're trying to make sure that the kitchen doesn't catch on fire or that, you know, the person <laughs> gets their dessert at table five they're not um, gonna hop on the phone with you and talk for 30 minutes about your wedding reception that's six months away. 
it's just not going to get done. Got it. So you're providing the software between that vendor or a venue and the customer. Right. Got it. Okay. So it's servicing, it's sort of, um, and and this is how it kind of relates to the rest of my background is it's a marketplace. It's, it's two-sided. There's the customer who wants to book something. Um, There's the restaurant or the venue who has the inventory that they want to sell. But they're, needs are not aligned. And so we as a third party can sit in the middle of those two and pull both together um, and be that uh, service provider, whether it's a software or a person um, that you can trust to uh, make sure that both sides are happy. Got it. Um, and, and where I wanted to connect the dots on that as well was, so you were president and a co-founder of those damn guys, the production company. Right. And then now you're chief revenue officer. Um, you know, when you're, pre- as you know, I mean, when you're president of a firm, revenue is one piece of everything you have to do. <laughs> um, how, what are the, what are the overlaps to like the, uh, a CRO at a, um, uh, at a, I would call you guys a growth company. You're like, are you all 20 plus headcount? What's your headcount? We're about 50 right now. 50. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, basically what are you heads down on as a CRO and where do you see those parallels to what you did in the past? Um, I mean, I, I feel like this is, this is my fourth startup. I would say my, um, my fourth startup experience and at varying phases along um, the startup path. Uh, but everything that I've done, I feel like has been in this high growth, figure it out, find product market fit. Once you find that product market fit, how do you pour gas on it? How do you grow it, scale it? How do you make it so that you can um, add more people to the puzzle and let it grow organically? Um, so for me, and, and this is just sort of who I am and how I've always been, even back in college was really great with strategy, really great with um, data and analytics and kind of a, an Excel wizard. <laughs> so really? Okay. I analyze everything. I used to, when I was, <laughs> when I was acting, I actually used to analyze my auditions. I used to keep track of every audition. Um, what, you mean? Like, what were you analyzing? You had game film or something? Well, they did film it, and so I could watch it. If I could get the film, I would. I would. Right, but it wasn't like a phone back then. You had to like. Yeah, no, I I actually built my own database in FileMaker Pro, and I would track all my. FileMaker Pro, that brings back memories. (laughs) Right. Um, I used to track them, and I used to. I would. I would um, take notes on the casting director that I met, or the director I met. um, What they liked, what they didn't like. I would rate my performance. Um, so I was always looking to like get that analytical edge and I've done that in every single business I've ever been in. I'm just really good at, um, grabbing the data, figuring out what it's telling me, um, or at least, you know, directionally, what is this saying? What, how can I learn from my past experiences? Um, and so that's been a unifying thing in, in every business. And, um, especially in this business coming in, I just got, you know, to event publicity back in January, uh, the last six months have been very much dig in, analyze, figure out where is it that we can, um, where is it that we have a blocker? Where is it that we can get an extra, you know, a couple percentage points in conversion rate? Where is it that we can become more effective, uh, more efficient? Um, and just kind of like looking at the scope of the business and, and pulling those things out and saying, okay, now that I have the insight, um, what can I do to get this in the right place on the right track? 
uh, how, how, what, um, which departments are you over as CRO? Um, I have the partner success. Um, so all of our venues that come through sales, um, making sure that we optimize their journey. We have an event booking department. These are the people who deal with our customers who the hosts who are looking to host an event at one of these venues. Um, this is a, about 20 people who on the phone almost all day, every day, um, doing sales and negotiation, um, initial lead engagement, all that kind of stuff. We have a chat team that does chat awesome over them. Uh, we have a kind of revenue optimization analytics team that I, nice. that I work with as well. Okay. Um, we're, do you have any, so the CRO position at implicity, was that created for you or was it already existing? Uh, it was created for me. So, um, to, you know, the part of the reason I started this podcast when I reached out to you is just because, you know, I've, I've been watching this position grow. Um, mm -hmm. it still hasn't really, I would not call it mainstream yet. Mm -hmm. Um, and so there's still a lot of, uh, pioneering, so to speak to do, right. what would you tell somebody who's about to become a CRO or, um, is applying to become a CRO about, you know, ask these questions before you, you know, go, go dive into a new job like that. How money is made and what the founders or, you know, the other executives at the company know about their revenue. Um, you know, mm. how granular do they get on um, the analysis of the revenue and, and really understanding what those lever levers are mm -hmm. um, for growth. Um, a lot of the, the biggest reason that they're bringing you on is probably because they don't know those things, but um, you're going to have to be able to have a uh, conversation with them about those levers once you identify what they are um, so that you can grow the company. And if, if they haven't even tried to look or they, they have no frame of reference, um, there's a whole different tactic you need to take than <laughs> if they do have a, a, an idea. So it's kind of just like being able to understand the, the playing field before you, you jump in. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And, that's, and also that's, a, that's a great point. Being really clear about um, the outcome that they're looking for. Um, yeah. And to your point, don't I, don't, I don't know that you can have the latter conversation. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like if they don't understand their revenue and how it works and, and what, levers there are, um, they may have a very different idea of the outcome than what is in reality, what's going to happen. And I think um, trying to have that conversation early, it just gives you an idea of what you're getting into. I, I don't think one way or another, it's like, take the job, don't take the job. Um, but you just need to be able to set the right expectations. Yeah, I would say uh, when I was younger, taking some sales leadership roles, I was, I, I guess, because I was always around you know, I was always in kind of, I don't want to say in awe, but, you know, Silicon Valley CEOs for startups is kind of where I was looking up to. And I would always just assume that they knew the business and that was not usually the case. Um, they get so focused on raising money or whatever they got to do from a PR perspective that they, for, they, they just, I don't know that they forget as much as they're just not involved in the business as much as they need to be. And then that just ends up hurting the people that they hire. I learned that the hard way. So yeah, that's a great point yes, for sure. Um, getting to the end, I'm going to ask you a couple of quick hit questions. Uh, right. you can take as long as you want, but they're meant to be fast. Okay. Um, what's your favorite tool that is in your CRM stack? We're in a unique position where, um, so we use Zendesk as a, uh, 
kind of deal flow CRM tracking system. Okay. Um, we've built a really cool proprietary piece of software on top of Zendesk, and that piece of software is my favorite part. <laughs> nice. So is, um, it, is, it, is it the Greg original, like, you know, FileMaker Pro or? <laughs> no, this was, this was here before me. Oh. Um, but this was here before me. Our CTO, Jose Luna, is an amazing systems engineer, and he's been able to build something really, really cool, um, especially for, for complex sales. It's unbelievable what uh, they've been able to build here. Um, it was very eye-opening for me coming in going, wow, I've always done this instinctively, but you've like built a system around it. <laughs> you, better, you better lock that guy down because exactly. most of the time when I do consulting jobs and I come across the CTO that custom built something, it's like what they want to see, not necessarily what's useful. So Yeah, I was very surprised because he's not a sales guy, but he, he kind of, he did, a, he did a really good job. There's, there's parts of it that I'd like to optimize and we're still working on it, but um, it's, it's pretty good. And they've got um, the, the, the team here on it and it really makes uh, everyone's life easier and job easier. And we can, I mean, we're, our team here is booking, I think we just crossed 500 events this month that we booked. Wow. In one a, month? In one month. And we, we executed on like 400 events. So we, we booked 500 that's and we executed on 400. 80%. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. So it's, it's pretty incredible the speed with which we can do this. And, and again, it's a complex sale that has, you know, 25 different touch points with the customer throughout the life cycle of the deal. Um, I have to find a way to spin out the software and white exactly. label. That's what I'm saying. Get this <laughs> um, thing out of here. Okay, you, you want some, some more revenue? Let's sell that thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, man, there's probably going to be a lot of CROs that hear this. They're going to be like, man, I want his guy. You're going to have to lock him down. <laughs> well, hey, give us a call. I'll figure out how I can sell it to you. <laughs> um, all right. So on your uh, last tech question, what's your favorite mobile app that's on your phone? Probably say either like Slack or Evernote. I yeah. like both of those. I use them a lot. Are you uh, iOS or Android? iOS. Gotcha. Um, remember the days before uh, smartphones when like nobody had the same phone? So you had like... Amazing. I remember when I went on the road with Michael Winslow, um, I had to get a cell phone. Like I just, I had to have one. Um, and it was the first time I had a cell phone. And I remember my family giving me such a hard time. <laughs> oh, you're so important. You need a cell phone. Every single one of them within a year or two had a cell phone. <laughs> <laughs> one step up above a beeper. Yeah. You're so important. Um, all right. Uh, what would your, if you were back in the, the league, what would your batter up song be? <laughs> well, um, I did have my own batter up song. Um, uh, Florida? That I, well, that I would sing in my head as I oh, okay. <laughs> the plate. Um, and it was just one of those things that it was a way for me to make sure I was kind of in that mode of confidence. I'm going up to the plate. It's, it's on, you know, it's game time. Let's go. Yep. Um, and it's so embarrassing now, but um, uh, DMX used to um, DMX and like Tupac were my, those were my people back then. Gotcha. Um, and so, uh, I, I kind of had this mix between either a, a Tupac song in my head or a, a DMX song. And I'm pretty sure the one that I'm, I'm going to say is in, it was a Tupac song. Um, but it was, I won't deny you. I'm a yep. straight rider. You don't want to fuck with me. <laughs> that was my song. I would sing it in my head as I was walking to the place. Ambitions as a rider. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. There you go. 
That's awesome. Um, you'd have to get the uh, clean cut version for any stadium today, but that would be pretty cool to see. Yeah. Um, if you could write one thing on a billboard in Times Square, what would it be? Um, I, I, you know, I thought about this one a little bit. So you sent it to me ahead of time, and there's a lot of things I would want to write on a billboard. <laughs> um, but the one that I, that really kind of sticks out to me is. Um, uh, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. I, I just really feel like, um, there's a lot of bad things that happen because people just think that they can and they do it instead of thinking about, well, should I do it? It's <laughs> a good point. It's a quick tangent. Did you, does that kind of like of your own experience or somebody told you that and just kind of stuck with you? I think my parents probably put that in me early on in life. Um, you know, some, some of my formative years, that was always kind of a, a mantra that I think I had. And, um, I definitely had moments in my life where I was like, but I can, and I just do it. <laughs> I'm just, I, I started laughing cause I'm thinking, I wish my parents had told me that based off some of the things I did. <laughs> yeah, no, I definitely didn't listen, but yeah. <laughs> it was in there. So, um, and over the years though, as I, as I realized that a lot of those decisions that I made because I can and not because I should, the result being not that positive. And, and it's not necessarily even the, the primary result. It's the secondary or tertiary result. You know, it's like down the road, you realize, oh, that's that decision that I made. Yeah, I shouldn't have done that. Um, and so I've been applying that more and more to business, especially. Um, and I, And I really think over the last, I mean, this has been over the last 10 years, I've been applying it to business. And I really do think that while you may forego some short-term gains, you end up with much better long-term gains. Yeah. That's one of the uh, positives about getting older is you start realizing that stuff. Yeah. Um, Greg, who's your favorite baseball player growing up? It was always Ken Griffey Jr. That was my boy. Really? I loved Ken Griffey Jr. And I, I loved his quiet confidence. He mm-hmm. didn't, he was so good. His swing was so perfect. Um, and he was so young and so talented, like, but he just didn't need to talk about it. He just got up every day and was awesome and mm. just knew it and played ball. Man, I, I wonder that. what it would have been like, uh, his notoriety if he'd been in a bigger market. Yeah. Bigger market. And he got hurt a lot towards the end of his career, but mm. man, he was just, he was incredible. Yeah. Um, had his uh had his nineteen ninety tops rookie card. Uniforms. Um last question, Greg, what's your uh, dream car? Oh man. I don't I don't really have one. I'm not a car guy. It's so You're weird. In South Florida. <laughs> I'm not a car guy though. Like All right, what's I, your dream uh thing that costs money? Probably um a private jet. Like I want, <laughs> I just don't want to have to go on a, a commercial airliner anymore. <laughs> uh, I don't so blame painful. you. I mean I would have made that whole Milwaukee thing a lot easier. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> uh Greg, if somebody wanted to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, I'd say find me on LinkedIn. That's super easy. Um, no matter where I am, um, always got LinkedIn going. Um, or if you want to get a hold of me as far as eventplicity stuff goes, greg.bond at eventplicity.com. And just for everyone, I'll put that in the show notes. But if you want to find his LinkedIn profile, it's Greg Bond 007. So there you go. Yeah. Somebody hard already not had to find Greg him. Bond. When I did Somebody already had Greg Bond. And I had really? to 007 to get a distinct name out of it. 
Oh, I thought you were like closet 007 fan or something. I didn't want to ask about it. <laughs> your last name Bond. You gotta, you gotta like the Bond. Roll with the punches. Yep. Um, Greg, thanks so much for joining me on the CRO Gumbo podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to CRO Gumbo. If you are a CRO or an executive leader at the intersection of sales, marketing, and customer service, and want to innovate around your existing revenue processes, or if you want to find some places where some lost revenue may be occurring, feel free to text us for more information on how we can help you. Text CRO to 555 that's C-R-O, 555-888. Now go innovate. I won't deny it, I'm a straight rider. You don't want to fuck with me. Got the police busting at me. But they can't do nothing to us.
Cause I know they coming for me 